Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. There's a few things that I have come to have strong opinions about. One is teams should own their own domains and services and data. You got to own like sort of full stack your, your domain. Um, you want to minimize coordination between teams and dependencies on teams. And then something that gets often overlooked as you scale is aligning the organization with the architecture. The organization's growing, the architecture's evolving, but you have to sort of like consciously align those two things if you want to maintain, you know, a highly functioning engineering team as you grow. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. When your engineering organization grows from 200 to over 1,200 engineers, you can expect there's going to be a lot of different leadership and organization phase changes that you'll need to handle. So how might your role evolve and what should you anticipate or expect along the journey? This episode features a session from our 2022 virtual ELC summit with Ryan King and Clarence Geo discussing how your leadership can change and evolve through hypergrowth. Ryan King is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Chime, Ryan was previously VP of Engineering at Plaxo, an early professional social networking pioneer that was acquired by Comcast Interactive Media. Ryan also held senior engineering roles at Liberate Technologies and Microsoft. Clarence Chio is the co-founder and CTO at Unit21, a Google-funded startup in San Francisco building tools to fight fraud, money laundering, and online abuse. He authored the O'Reilly book, Machine Learning and Security, and is also an adjunct lecturer at UC Berkeley, teaching a graduate course on the same topic. Enjoy this conversation with Ryan King and Clarence Chio. Hey, Ryan. Good to see you again. Hey, good to see you, Clarence. I was really looking forward to this because I, I see you as, as a mentor. We first met you at Chime when we were just a two-person company, Trisha and I. And uh, it's been, yeah, it's, it's been really tremendous to see Chime's meteoric growth throughout the last three years. Like, and um, our company has also matured a little bit more since then. But, you know, I'd love to take this time to get to know a little bit about your mentality, the psychology that's, that's driving Chime's growth. You know, I have a few questions prepared here and uh, let's just have a conversation about it. Yeah, sounds great. I've been, uh, it's been really exciting for me to, as a, as a early person involved in your company, I've been really exciting to see, for me to see you guys grow and uh, yeah, happy to, happy to have this chat. So I'm, I'm curious, I think for everyone around here, everyone watching, uh, they're probably curious about you know, how you got to start Chime, how did Chime get to where it is today? I met my co-founder Chris in 2012, so I'm almost at year 10. <laughs> um, and so if you go back to then, we were both at startups that had had okay, you know, good, good or okay exits as executives. I was the head of engineering of my startup and he was the head of product of his. And we met uh, socially. It turns out we lived on opposite sides of a park here in San Francisco. 
and we were both having, we were both were starting to have kids. As an aside, I would, I would not recommend trying to start a company with small children, but <laughs> I would not recommend that to my worst enemy. And, uh, you know, I, I've grown up in Silicon Valley. My parents were engineers. I was born in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So I was really hungry for uh, having an impact, using technology to have an impact outside of the bubble that I've spent most of my life. Um, I didn't know anything about fintech or financial services, um, but I was drawn to the industry because I saw a real chance to, to do exactly that, to, to build things quickly that get used by lots of people and actually help, help people, normal people, not, not just engineers and things like that. So for me, that's what drew me to uh, my co-founder, Chris, and to the industry, even though I didn't uh, know much about either when, when, when I started Chime. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think, you know, throughout the time working with Chime, we've seen how much the team has grown and matured. And there's, you know, like 80% of the team was not around, maybe even more when we first started working with them. So I'm sure your role as co-founder and CTO has changed and evolved over time. I've definitely felt it in the short three years that I've been playing this role. But how would you, you know, how would you describe how that has changed? Yeah, it certainly has changed quite a lot. Uh... So when we started Chime, I was probably 50% writing code, 50% recruiting people to the company, and 50% raising money. And I realized the math doesn't work out on that, but it's sure, it certainly felt like I was working more than a full-time job. I was always surprised. You know, the, the thing that surprised me most about being a founder, I'd be curious, Clarence, if you had the same observation, is just how much time I spent raising money. It wasn't, it wasn't what was in my mental model of what life was going to be like as an early stage founder, yeah. like I felt like some days that's all I did was try to raise money and not succeed at it. Um, um, nowadays, so now we're time is like, I don't know, 1200 people, something in that. Uh, I spend 0% of my time writing code, which there's a part of me that's sad about. Uh, I do get to spend maybe a quarter of my time focusing on longer term future innovations. Like what is, what, what's in store for the company and how to get a head start on it. You know what's our roadmap for next year and the year after and five years down the road and so forth so that's that's sort of fun i spend a lot of time maybe another quarter of my time i spend uh setting and aligning goals for teams and leaders and making sure people have clear roles and responsibilities and then you know at this size and scale it almost doesn't matter that i'm a technologist it's like i spend probably half my time on just any anything and everything that's needed to scale an organization to, to this size so it's changed quite a lot. Yeah, fully resonate with what you said earlier about raising money. I feel I felt like there was this a like, huge section of time where I just felt I was trying to like talk to a bunch of people that didn't really know a lot about the space and trying to you know, convince them this is a thing. And I I felt like that really did help me to kind of nail down the pitch to candidates and to engineers who are joining the team now. Yeah, that's the upside is you get good at sort of selling even if you're even if that's not your your background. Um. I'm curious, like how how did the team grow? Like, the, did the engineering team structure and topologies evolve over time? Are you opinionated on on things like that? And you know, what did time do to evolve? When you're small, structured for the most part, process doesn't really matter that much. All that matters is velocity. You st you fail when you run out of money before you find product market fit. So, and that's the most likely outcome for you know most most early stage startups. So, you know, it's all about taking shortcuts whenever possible. You accumulate tech debt that's fine like you know because because if you accumulate tech debt and you find product market fit then you can fix it later you know i would push often for like for, for almost like no ownership like 
everybody can, anyone can change any line of code anywhere in the system. And that's the fact when you're small, that's sort of like anyone can do anything is empowering and can often lead to you being, being fast. And so, you know, we look at any decisions we made about through the lens of speed, like what can get something shipped the fastest? Let's do that. But then of course that changes dramatically, you know, to 180 degrees as you, as you grow. And there's some, I don't know, inflection point, maybe it's 30 engineers or maybe it's 50. I don't know. There's some inflection point along the way where all of a sudden the structure and topology matters a whole heck of a lot and then starts to sort of increase exponentially. And so when you get to larger sizes, um, there's a few things that I have come to have strong opinions about. One is uh, teams should own their own domains and services and data. And so this concept of like, you know, let's say you're the uh, account opening team or whatever, you're the you're the checkout team on an e-commerce site, right? It's like you got to own, you got to own like sort of full stack your, your domain. Um, you want to minimize coordination between teams and dependencies on teams. And when I say team, I usually mean like, you know, your typical scrum team, six, eight engineers, product manager, designer, maybe that sort of stuff. And so, you know, minimize coordination needed between teams. Because when you get to this size at Chime, we have, you know, 50 scrum teams. It's like, if you depend on 12 other teams, like you're never going to get anything done. <laughs> like just the just the communication overhead will, won't slow you down too much. And then something that gets often overlooked as you scale is aligning the organization with the architecture. And right, the organization's growing, the architecture's evolving, but you have to sort of like consciously align those two things if you want to maintain you know, a highly functioning engineering team as you grow. I'm curious, like, do you think this is a, like, when do you think it's justified to deviate from such a structure? Do you think it's always right for companies or not always right? Well, there's no absolute. Everything's a trade-off, right? And it's like, oftentimes what you find is, you know, there's customer problems and company goals and business goals on sort of one side. And then there's software and bits and code repos and things like that on the other. And you're sort of like product and engineering organizations just trying to optimally organize around both, both of those things, right? And so it's all trade-offs. It's like, you know, if you only organize around the way the code is currently written, you're probably not going to be great at solving the customer problems, which don't necessarily map to how your code is organized. Um, and vice versa, if you only organize around customer problems, you'll probably find yourself really inefficient because, you know, you've got 12 different teams trying to, fight each other for the same code repo, right? So, so it's, it's, it's about um, maximizing the alignment between those two and be willing to, um, you know, find a middle ground and evolve both how you articulate your goals and your, evolve your architecture so that they can sort of maximally align. Earlier you mentioned something that, that I thought was really interesting, like your evolution of your role as a CTO from the company's formation till now. At some point in the middle, you must have brought in additional leadership and then your chime has VP of engineering now. Like, when did you know it was the right time to bring someone in? I'm asking because it's super relevant. We're at 60, 70 engineers right now. I'm actually giving an offer to, to a VP of engineering today. Oh, and so, well, and so Best of luck. <laughs> I, I have a ton of questions about it. <laughs> but well, how, how, do you, how do you think about it? Yeah, um, well, I'll give you our, our history, our story there, uh, and then maybe give you some thoughts about what worked and what didn't about the way we approached it. So I was very lucky in some ways. I had a, I had a VP of engineering from day, nearly day one. What that role entailed when you're a small startup is very different than, than what, what it does at your stage or at my stage now. 
you know, at the very beginning, it was hands-on, 75% of the time he was writing code and 25% of the time recruiting and managing a small team, you know, when we were sort of less than, fewer than 10 engineers. And the specialty of that person at that stage was what he was really awesome at, and I'm sure still is, is um, recruiting the sort of like zero to one, you know, the, the starters, people that thrive when they're staring at a blank whiteboard. You know, <laughs> right? And and uh, those types of engineers. And you know, we didn't have product. We didn't have engineering managers. We didn't have scrum masters. We didn't have any of these sort of supporting functions. And so he, you know, was able to do a bunch of those things as well. The trick, like these zero to one specialty, you know, starters, are a little bit. Um, the tactics to find and recruit them are a little bit different. You know, it's. These are not typically people you find that are working nine to five jobs at Google or or whatever. They sometimes come from non-traditional backgrounds. They often uh, have started their own companies or want to start their own companies. They're very entrepreneurial folks. And, and so our, the strength of our first VP of engineering was like knowing how to, where to find those folks and how to attract them. It's like finding the diamonds in the rough, right? Um, and then when we hit maybe, when, when we were, you know, I, I don't remember, we raised a B round or something. And I was like, okay, we got to grow the team from 15 to 100 as fast as possible. And I was like, okay, he's not the right, that's not his core strength. So it was at that moment I say, okay, well, now I need to bring someone in who, you know, that's the main thing I'm optimizing for. I needed to find someone who's specialized because I'd never done that myself. I'd, I'd grown teams, but a little bit more slowly over the years. But this was like, you know, I was like, okay, by the end of the year, I want to grow from 15 to 100 and I don't have the first idea to how to do that. And neither did my first VP of engineering. And so that's when I hired uh, the second VP of engineering I had, which is probably a little bit similar maybe to the, the point you're at now, organizing teams, motivating teams and scaling the organization up growth, you know, of the organization is the specialty you want to find. That's sort of the second chapter of time. And now the third, I'm on the third iteration of that, which is, you know, when we get into the many hundreds of engineers, you know, and we're looking to mature as an engineering organization along a whole bunch of dimensions, everything from, you know, just operational excellence to how we measure availability to being a little bit more predictable. You know, when we're 10 people, we don't care about predictability when you start to think about becoming a public company and things like that, right? Predictability becomes more important. And so the first thing I did was I, I split engineering into several groups. That's why, you, as you mentioned, a, a few VPs of engineering, and then I hired a, a senior VP over that who had you know experience. Uh, the guy I have now is a guy named James Bressy, who's who was the CTO of PayPal prior to this. So, you know, he's had experience at large public companies with, you know, uh, I think his last engineering team was 5,000 people. So I have no, I have no, uh, you know, he, he's got plenty of headroom of, of large organizations that he knows how to, has a, how to empower. So that's kind of our, you know, our journey. Your question was like, how did I know was the right time? I was like, well, when the number one thing I'm optimizing for changes radically, that's how I knew it was time to to either hire the first to VP or to, you know, find someone who has a, a different, you know, number one specialty. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Yeah. 
I, I think the the scaling piece when you when you realize that the thing that the the person is doing is no longer the same thing as they were hired to do and yeah that's that's, that's interesting and I'm sure as you brought in especially with your second and third VP of engineering as they were brought into the organization you know you did some things they did some things to build trust and credibility across the org how did you feel like they were successful at it? Like how, what did they do that, that made them successful at it? Different answers at different stages, right? I think at the smaller teams, the earlier stages, it's with the types of sort of um, early stage employees and things like that. It's a lot of, uh, you know, earning the technical respect of the team is really important, right? Um, and you, there's, you know, you can do that through you know, thoughtful contributions to architecture or code or, or whatever, right? There's clear ways to do that. I think as you get to the sort of mid-stage, you know, earning, earning the trust of the team in more of a organizational people management, mentorship sort of capacity, people feel like you've got their back and you're giving them good feedback and that's helping them grow as people and leaders and so forth becomes really important. And then you get into the, the bigger and later stages and, you know, when you have a 1200 person company, things like, do you trust this person to represent the best interests of engineering across, you know, when they're, you know, re representing it at the senior most executive levels of the company and things like that, I think, you know, but at the end of the day, it's like, people got to know what they're talking about. <laughs> it's a, sort of the, that's sort of the baseline at any stage, right? It's just that what matters most about that is, changes a little bit as you grow. Earlier, you mentioned that a lot of your time spent you know, in the company today is maybe setting goals for leadership, setting goals for different teams. How does Chime set goals today? We, we've experimented with so many different ways and it's it seems to be different with every stage as well, what's effective. So how, how do you do it? Yeah, it's tough. Um, it's kind of like project management software. It's like they're all terrible. So it's just like finding the least terrible one. We use, we use OKRs at, at Chime yeah. and we actually have for quite some time, maybe three or four years, maybe longer. Um, you know, it's just one framework, right? And and we don't have a, you know, we don't have a lot of purism when it comes to that. But you know, the 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 attributes of the goals and how we set goals that that matter to us most are like, you know, the goals are are clear and they're measurable and they're aggressive but achievable, right? You want to look at a goal and you don't want to you don't want people to think oh there's no way we're gonna get that and you don't want to set a goal and people think oh that's easy we we don't have to do anything. That's the properties, the meta properties of the goals that we care most about. And then there's this sort of concept of like, how do you, you know, OKRs, the best feature of them is that they're, uh, they can, if used right, they can be very aligning. So it's like, you know, I have my goals and you have yours and we can see how that if you do yours and I do achieve mine, then the company achieves its. That That's probably the best feature of it. The worst feature of it is we found it difficult to fit longer term investments into that framework. Cause it's like, you know, the OKR framework says, well, you have to have a measurable outcome at the end of the quarter or the half or the year or whatever. And, you know, you can sort of force fit that sometimes to a longer term. Let's say you want to build a new platform or whatever, a new product. And, and, you know, it's like, well, we're not going to move revenue this quarter cause we, it's going to take us a year to get the, whatever. So, so that's probably the worst feature of it, but that's what we've done. And, and, uh, and it, and it works okay. But if you know something better, I'd be on my ears. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we actually do the same thing. I, you know, we, we did OKRs the whole of last year. I felt like we weren't purists about it. I, I did some things wrong and, and have been trying to make, make things better. But 
Yeah, we did a lot of things wrong too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I mean, yeah, I could give like, I could probably talk for an hour about tips on OKRs, but it's pretty boring. But like, you know, one of the upgrades we've made recently is like to make sure every KR has a, is, is not just to like increase such and such by 20%. It's like absolute value of metric goes from X to Y. Just put that in the OKR. Mm. I find that to be more clarifying and more, and then you can like, okay, well, we started at X and then we're trying to get to Y and how far are we? And what are the initiatives that we're going to do to take it each step of the way? And it just seems to work a little bit better. Take revenue from 100 million AR to 150 million AR. Okay, great. Yeah, that makes sense. The thing I really like about it is that it's it's an irrefutable checkpoint, right? It's 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 not a you know moving target. Yeah, it sort of has a checkpoint. And yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious about measuring engineering team performance. Like, do you use OKRs for that, or how do you know if the engineering team is performing well, moving fast? High velocity or not? That's that's a, that's a, one of the toughest questions I think in our industry. In, in some, it's ironic actually because in some ways, in our craft in engineering, like the output is probably the most one of the most tangible and measurable things that exists. Right? It's code, and you can see it, and everyone can see it. Right? You know, there's a few things you can, but but yeah. At the same time, it seems very difficult to measure things like product productivity or, or velocity. These things tend to be a bit elusive. There are a bunch of things you can measure, and so. You know, basically, engineering comes down to a few types of activities. Right? You have designing systems, writing code, reviewing code, testing and writing automated tests. You know, deployment, operational operations, operational excellence, maintenance. And I don't think there's like, maybe there is, but I haven't haven't seen it work. There's not like one KPI that can measure the entire performance of the entire engineering team across all those activities. But there's a bunch of things that you can measure that give you little signals into the health of the organization. So some of the easiest things, for example, come towards the bottom of the funnel, like uh, availability, uptime, number of incidents, cost of poor quality, things things like that you can measure quite easily um, if you put your mind to it. In our case, we actually have availability as a top level company OKR. So to answer your question, do we use uh, OKRs? In some cases, when it aligns, we do, um, but then there's, measurable, you know, sort of units of measurement all, all the way up the stack, like, you know, code coverage for testing as a percentage of code, a time that people spend on code reviews, that average time between when a PR is submitted and when it's approved and when it's between it's approved and when it's deployed and, uh, you know, the number of rollback times you have to do a rollback, uh, you know, you can measure things like failed customer interactions. You know, a lot of those are sort of quality based metrics, but they're sort of like a bunch of these things you can lump under like quality metrics, and there's a bunch of things you can probably lump under velocity. I've found quality a bit easier to measure than velocity. You know, a highly functioning team ships a lot of stuff quickly that works well. That's like, and then the question is just how do you, you know, how do you, how do you measure each part of that? But I'm not a overly zealous about measuring that, but sort of keeping an eye on some of those things. In the case of availability, it matters like a ton to the company. You know, like we're, we're the primary bank account for millions of people. So we have to be up all the time. And so that, that rises the level of, you know, company KR, but everything else is for us. So like, keep an eye on it, see if there's things you can do to, to improve it. We now are at the size where we have uh, a, a function that we call engineering operations, whose charter is to make the rest of the engineering teams more happy and more productive and, and, and all these sorts of things. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fascinating. I think, you know, that team's objectives definitely will be measured by the overall team productivity. And yep. 
Yeah, we do. We do things that like that are. We turn things that are like sometimes less measurable into more measurable. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, what is the uh, satisfaction score, or NPS score of our uh, developer experience tooling and tool chains amongst the engineers at China? Well, you can measure that. You can baseline it. You can try to improve it. Right now, does that does that directly link to velocity? Maybe, maybe not. But like, you know, it's probably. If people are happy and feel more productive, they're probably higher velocity. Mm. Yeah, it's correlated. Yeah, that that makes sense. For a lot of viewers, for a lot of like early engineering leaders in companies, uh, hiring, recruiting is always this big topic that comes up. It was a huge topic in the peer group and talking week to week with all these engineering leaders. But I think Chime hires really well. What do you think Chime does differently to hire great engineers effectively, efficiently, and what can we learn from it? Um, I mean, for us, the it's always started with the mission and really leaning into that. Lead, you know, the, when we, when we lead with any recruiting pitch or anything, it's like we start with the mission, and and it's not that everyone in the world finds great resonance with the mission, but for those who do, uh, it's a sort of really powerful hook. Have a strong, well-articulated mission that and figure out how to communicate in a way that really speaks to people. Interestingly for Chime, since we're, you know, one of our superpowers is sort of like we build products mostly not for ourselves, uh, meaning the typical Chime customer is not typically, a, you know, an engineer in Silicon Valley. And so that's a, that's a pro and a con. It's a pro because it, you can attract people and recruit people through this connection to, you know, doing, do well by doing good and, and sort of things, helping, helping lots of people and that sort of stuff. It's a con because we don't have as much, or certainly in the early days, we didn't have as much employer brand recognition within the engineering community, right? Like versus a, I don't know, a Twitter or an Airbnb or an Uber or something where it's like everyone knows that and they use the product every day. Everyone is an engineer. And so, but anyway, so back to your question, like, you know, starts with mission, you know, you got to have technical challenges that are real and, and, and concrete. Of course, you know, compensation plays a role in that. One of the most interesting things that we saw over the years was we probably like many other early stage startups heavily relied on outside recruiting firms, contingency-based recruiting firms. And up until, I don't know, maybe we were a hundred people or maybe even more. And that's a slog. It's like, you know, our, our offer accept, you know, let's talk about things you can measure. We would measure our offer acceptance rate, right? What percentage of the time we give an offer someone accept? When we relied exclusively on contingency recruiters, our offer acceptance rates were like, I don't know, 30% or 40% maybe on a good day. At some point we decided to start to bring that in house. And now we have, I think, 50 people in recruiting or something like that, just in recruiting function in time. Um, and when we did that, and you know, not all of this, not all of the credit goes to the in-house recruiting team, but a lot of it does. You know, we we moved our offer acceptance rate to like 90%. And part of that's just, you know, it's it's subtle, but it's like you're able to tell your story better. You're able to, you know, when you talk to someone who works at the company, it's like, you know, that combined with uh, you know, typically contingency recruiters are getting any given candidate in front of as many companies as possible, right? Their, their, incentive, their incentives are not perfectly aligned with the companies, right? So this is an interesting observation I had that, that really made a step function change. Now, you can't, you know, if you're a 10-person company, you can't just 
you know, it's not worth having a 50 person recruiting team. That right? doesn't make any sense. Um, so you have to pick the right point to, to do that when you know you're going to grow a lot. And, and there's a certain like minimum viable investment you got to make to, to take it in house. But that investment really, really paid off for us. Um, and then, you know, be conscious about, like I mentioned, company sort of technology brand, like be conscious of that. How does, how do engineers perceive your company? Have they ever heard of it? You know, start with that, start with awareness. You can measure that, right? Uh, and then what do they think about it? I think that's, that's something we've had to consciously work on, uh, especially given the, the target customer that Chime serves is, is typically not, not, a, not an engineer. That makes sense. Yeah. I fully resonate with the contingency external recruiters versus in-house. We used on contingency the entire of last year and recently started to build our own team and it's a stark difference. Just the messaging is, is a lot more crisp. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what advice do you have for, you know, founders, engineering leaders, building products and companies who have yet to find product market fit, who are you know, slogging through and iterating their way there? Okay. I'll say two things that are going to sound like they contradict each other. So then I'll explain why they don't. Uh, so the first is you have to have passion and stamina and never give up. Like startups fail when the founder runs out of steam. Really? I mean, people say startups fail when they run out of money. Well, you really run out of steam. <laughs> That's why, you know. Um, and I can tell you it's a heck of a marathon. Like I, like I said, I'm on year 10 myself. And, you know, we, we got we got a, a ways to go, I think, before we achieve our, our you know, potential. And then, so that's one thing. And then second thing I'll say, which sounds like a contradiction is like, if the problem you're working on is, is something that you can't easily imagine dedicating a decade or more of your life to, and, or if people aren't going to pay you to solve the problem, then you should probably stop working on it. So <laughs> which I said, never give up. And then I said, stop working on it. Um, you know, so to summarize, I guess like, Make things people want and will pay you for either directly or indirectly, and then never give up so long as, as, as that's what you're doing and you're passionate about it. That would be my advice. That's good advice. I'll take it to heart. It's a, a long journey on year four now, but thank you, Ryan. Thanks for all the insights shared. You know, these are secretly answering all the questions I wanted to ask you for a long time. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks so much for the great questions. It's, it's been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.